Hello, I'm Chris Slowly, the editor of Citywide Selector, and welcome to another episode of Future Thinking. One thing that is definitely going to shape the future ahead is how companies are run and what the corporate culture is going to be like, as we've already heard in this series. Today, I'm joined by author and board member Danvisa Moyo, who joins me from New York. Hi, Danvisa, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. So you're in the middle of promoting your latest book, which really gets to the heart of that question about what role boards have in a corporate world. So can we start there? I mean, we are looking at the future trends, the way that corporate boards function. It's going to be a huge part of that. Can we start there? Do they remain the best way to do things? Yes. Um, So uh, my new book, How Boards Work and How They Can Work Better in a Chaotic World, really um, aims to capture the uh, current environment economically, geopolitically, and um, socially and and culturally, which, um, as we know, is evolving uh, at a much faster speed than uh, really ever ever before. And certainly uh, in my over 10-year career, um, the speed has picked up because of so many new challenges such as COVID, but also many other aspects of society such as technology and digitization that are occurring at a much more rapid clip. With respect to how um, boards uh, and and really corporations more generally will change, um, I wanted to write this book to reassert the importance of corporations uh, at a time when there's been a lot of skepticism about what it is companies do and what their uh, responsibilities are. Um, Just to to place this in context, um, we know that over multiple century companies have created jobs, Um, They have helped build infrastructure. They have been part and parcel of innovation, as we've just seen recently with the creation of the vaccine uh, to to combat uh, COVID-19. But also, we know that companies provide a huge tax base, which is a really important source of revenue for government. But right now, companies um, are are being asked to do ever more. Um, In particular, the ESG agenda, Environment, Social and Governance Agenda, is, a, is requiring companies to go beyond just being focused on uh, the primacy of financial shareholders and to start thinking more broadly about their role when it comes to broader stakeholders such as community, employees, uh, um, the regulators, government, and society writ large. And that has with it a number of complexities. Um, and by ESG, I should just say it includes things like climate change, pay equity, racial and gender uh, um, uh, parity, issues of investing in China, uh, the list goes on and on. And I talk about all the challenges with this agenda in my new book. Expanding on that theme, the, the, that is something we have definitely seen over the last year and perhaps even longer is the amount of engagement from investors with companies has increased hugely. The engagement is probably the word du jour we've seen on the ESG side of things as people want to make sure companies are being run correctly. How are companies responding to that and what more can they do? Do they need to be more proactive? Do they need to be more transparent? Does that even come up in the in the work that you're looking into? Oh, yes, absolutely. It does. Um, you know, we, uh, as you know, in my over 10 years on boards, um, it's been patently clear to me that ultimately, we want companies to survive and to succeed and to do their jobs and uh, contribute to society in their most effective way. Um, according to JP Morgan Asset Management, uh, the assets under management right now, um, towards ESG at the end of 2020, I should say, were estimated to be about $45 trillion. So clearly that is an enormous amount of, of, of money and effort and timeshare going into um, this very important area. Um, perhaps to, to think a little bit more clearly about how companies are thinking about this, it's, it's really important to underscore 
the three key uh, aspects or responsibilities of a board um, and how that fits into how companies will evolve over time. Um, the board has three responsibilities. First is to oversee strategy. So what a company does, how it stays profitable, how it stays competitive, um, and obviously, hoping to manage companies so that they remain a going concern. Uh, I served on the board of Barclays Bank and Barclays is over 360 years old. And if you think about the sweep of history, that company had to go through World War I, World War II, the Industrial Revolution, et cetera, other pandemics. Um, and uh, in that regard, boards have an important responsibility to chaperone and to shepherd companies through good and bad times. Second responsibility is to hire, and in some cases have to fire the CEO. And this, um, this responsibility has become ever more important as uh, we are moving beyond just looking at financial and operational importance of CEOs and thinking much more about what their responsibility is around ethics and the moral compass of the company as they become more and more the standard bearer of the corporate culture. And then the third area of oversight and responsibility of the board is around these issues. In the book, I call them uh, the cultural frontier. Um, this is going beyond non-negotiable things like excellence and professionalism, where I think we broadly uh, all can agree that that's an important aspect of running a global business. Um, but at the same time, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, areas such as the ones I just mentioned, climate change, worker advocacy, um, et cetera, that are now in the boardroom and are requiring that boards uh, update and upgrade themselves and how they uh, assess their progress, but also think of, about what the role of corporations will be uh, in the future. That was going to be my next question because there, there's optimism and, and supportive elements of ESG at a board level now, but how can success be measured? How can that be worked out? And that's a wonderful question. Um, and it's very complex also. Um, on the one hand, very macro level, uh, companies uh, have largely accepted and subscribed to uh, the theory outlined, for example, in the 2019 Business Roundtable Statement. The you know, Corporate Code of Conduct in the UK has also gone and made this, uh, taken the step to say we're moving beyond uh, the primacy of the financial shareholder. Um, but actually putting these things, uh, this sort of lofty goal into practice is quite challenging. Uh, it's challenging because sectors are different. It's challenging because uh, regions are different and cultural norms do play an important uh, role in, in how people see, for example, worker rights. Um, they differ in and how people uh, might, uh, might feel about uh, how uh, a company's uh, market and response to that is, is quite important. And then of course, it's also different um, based on uh, at what stage uh, uh, companies are, you know, for a startup there, uh, you know, first and most important uh, agenda item is to stay alive. And that's very different from a company that's say over a hundred years old. Um, I would also like to add, and I really stress this in the book, that all these uh, ESG issues are further complicated by the fact that they are um, often uh, accompanied by, by trade-offs. So for example, we can all agree that diversity is critical. Uh, we've seen the data, we know diversity is really important for the success of businesses now. When we look at the return on equity, um, return on invested capital, the data is in diversity matters. But at the same time, we don't want to fight discrimination with discrimination. Um, and by that, I mean, we don't want to be in a situation where we're alienating, uh, in, even if it's inadvertently, 
um, alienating high-performing white guys because uh, they think that they are no longer wanted or desired in a company. Um, ESG, you know, has many of those trade-offs and, and that require better metrics. Um, they need to be much more transparent, sustainable. They need to be dynamic. You know, six months ago, I was not anticipating that boards and companies would have to think about uh, voter rights. Um, and so, uh, we, but we are uh, today, especially on the back of that Georgia uh, decision. And uh, as I sit here, I have to think about what, you know, in six months might be a new issue that I'm not anticipating at, at the moment. Um, and whatever that may be, we want a system of ESG that uh, is, is able to be comparable across industries and companies, but also flexible to adapt to the, the world um, as, it, as it's coming. It's definitely an evolving situation and an evolving market. And one thing that stood out for me, because I was, I was looking through the, the Halbord's work, um, book, the, the, the literature that comes with the literature, so to speak, um, one thing that is mentioned there or touched upon is quota systems. And I was writing in May about the Brunel Pension Partnership. They put out their 2021 report, which covers all of their work across multiple ESG factors. And one of them was about representation and the representation of the companies that they're investing in. And it's a very slow process, a very incremental process. How much more needs to be done there? And where do you actually stand on quota systems? Are there benefit to them or are there challenges around them always? I think it's good news, bad news with respect to, to quotas. And in, in some respect, they're a necessary evil because we've been slow on the uptick as, as, as society generally, whether it's government, academia, corporations in really um, having our institutions, particularly at the, at the highest levels, to reflect um, society as it is today. Um, the, the, so that's kind of the, the bad news is that we've had to sort of go, go down that road, road sort of a mandated route, um, you know, especially in places like across continental Europe. Um, the good news, however, is that there is enormous amount of talent uh, among, uh, among women, among um, minorities, um, you know, racial minorities, and other groups, and uh, you know, I myself am I'm an unconventional board member in the sense that I'm, I'm black, I'm a woman, I'm from Africa, um, and what the reason, part of the reason I've, I've been able to join these global and large complex organization boards is because there has been an understanding. Um, that uh, we need to widen the aperture of how we recruit and how we think about the problems and challenges that corporations face, but also about how and who can be most helpful in addressing those issues. So I'm incredibly optimistic um, that uh, you know before too long, uh, the diversity uh, numbers will improve. They have already. We now have in the UK, 34% of FTSE companies are, uh, are, are women. Um, and that's happened quite uh, quite quickly. And if you look at the talent, um, it, it's not uh, the case that we're having to to um, you know essentially put people in who are unqualified. We're putting in people who are immensely qualified and and able to contribute in an impactful and effective way. We've certainly seen that in asset management because the Europe's biggest asset manager, Mundi, announced their new CEO, Valerie Bodson, who would be joining or taking over. Later in this year, Franklin Templeton, another huge player in America, added Jenny Johnson, who had been in a senior role but is now overseeing everything. And BNY Mellon in the in, in the US added Hannah Schmetz, who was working in a different part of the company. But it does seem there is progress being made. And we are hearing the right noises about this diversity of thought as well. And how, how, how much can that develop and how much should companies be looking at adding more diverse voices throughout the company, not just at a board level? 
it's absolutely critical. Um, <clears throat> I've been a bit, very big advocate in making sure that boardrooms, uh, C-suites, but also broadly in society, we have those competing voices. We have um, the ability to, to debate uh, different uh, ideas. And that's the world we live in. Um, you know, you look at the, the largest number one and number two, the largest economies today, the United States is one that's built on market capitalism and liberal democracy, but hot on the heels is num of number two is China, which deprioritizes democracy and uh, has focused on, uh, on state capitalism. Um, the notion that we can be running businesses without consideration, due consideration for differences, not just between um, China and the United States or the West versus the rest, but without due consideration within uh, uh, democratic societies and how their differences, I think, would be uh, would be a, a massive blind spot. And the best boards that I've served on understand that, and we are absolutely forging and fostering um, the types of uh, of, of uh, conversations that uh, that do check and challenge, as well as uh, as really debate um, assumptions and and really. Uh, welcome competing thoughts, uh, you know, based on on history, based on the current situation, and, and based on the reality that this is the way the world works and will continue to do so in, for centuries to come. I've intermittently finished these on one question, which I've, it's a little bit unfair because I didn't share it with you beforehand. Is is looking ten years ahead? I mean, this is called future thinking. So, I've heard about ten years into the future of AI, even ten years into the future of space innovation. If we were to have this conversation in ten years' time, then be so. What's the most important change you'd like to see? in terms of board representation or all the way company culture works? It's a wonderful question. Um, I would say that uh, one area that uh, I hope would be much more embedded in how we think and operate will be around ethics. Um, you know, clearly companies have, have focused in terms of their responsibility of strategy, hiring and culture, very much focused on uh, on financials. We look at, at uh, not just financial metrics, but also operational metrics. We probe into the leadership style. Is this person a team player or not? But I think one area that we have a lot more scope to to really probe and, and use as a maybe strengthen the muscle to have better companies for the future is around ethics and the moral compass. You know, I'm reminded very quickly that uh, in the in, in 18 months, there were over 400 CEOs and senior executives, business executives that were fired um, due to Me Too. Um, those types of, uh, of sort of toxic cultures, I don't think long, longer term are helpful and sustainable. And so I do think that that's one area where we need to stamp an imprimatur. And as we evaluate candidates and lead these companies, move just, you know, critically understand that finance and operations, et cetera, leadership styles are, are critical and we must continue to, to, uh, to hold people to the fire in those. But we've got to add on a moral and ethical lens in a much more uh, thoughtful uh, and active way. I think that's a great point to finish on. Dambisa, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and to chat with you.